HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, June 7th, 2017. This is the 144th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. So today my guest is a top wine personality and the author of a new fabulous wine book, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be open to breaking rules. Yes, it's okay to question things and go against the norm. Of course, some rules are not meant to be broken, but we don't need to go on autopilot with everything we do. Whoever wrote the rule is something often said by my episode 100 guest, the king of hospitality, Danny Meyer. He brings up this question when looking at situations and evaluating what is right for his company. It's a good rule, pun intended. So don't be afraid to question principles and make them your own. That is my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled to have my guest in the studio. It is Mark Oldman, one of the country's lead wine personalities, who is on the side of anyone who wants to enjoy wine more. Author of three acclaimed wine books, Mark recently released the much-lauded How to Drink Like a Billionaire, As a regular speaker, his sold-out appearances at the country's top venues have been called hilariously entertaining and must-see events in the world of wine and food, and I would agree. So welcome, Mark. It's great to be here, Sherry. Yeah, it's great to have you. (laughs) And you always, I I notice you you do wear bright colors, or you have this, like, beautiful aqua shirt on, matches your (laughs) eyes. It's like, it's like, it's bringing out like, I don't know, happiness in the room. Well, there was already a lot of happiness to start with, but I'll say one of the reasons why I'm wearing it is because I'm lazy and this is my third uh, administration of it. You could see the ring around the collar, but but thank you for complimenting it. I felt embarrassed about it. No, no, no. It's, it's very happy. Cool. So, um, well, I, I, you know, I want to start out with with your background and how you got into wine and what was it about about wine that 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 made you made you such a lover and like and your career. Well, you know, Sherry, I'm a fan of your podcast, so I had a feeling I, I've listened to many 
of them. And yes, uh, I do start the w- same way. <laughs> yeah, well, but I love it. It's yeah, because, thank you. You know, you get to learn mm-hmm. kind of the details about certain amazing professionals that you never would have known. And so I thought about this a little bit, and I was going to tell you about the wine club I started in college, which was one of the early um, brushes with wine. But actually, when I was in high school, my New Jersey public high school, I was uh, uh, president of the National Honor Society, and I had they had to give um, they asked me to give a speech on character uh, to the parents. And I went back, I dug through all my papers not too long ago, and I found the original speech. So this is when I'm 17 years old. And I grew up in a family that liked wine but knew nothing about it. And somehow this foreshadowed my interest in wine because as I'm talking about character, the speech started off, uh, when they say a wine has good character, they mean X, Y, and Z. And when they talk about a person having good character, they mean this and that and this. So I use the analogy of wine in one of my first real important public speaking situations. So that was the original point. That's when the seed was planted. (laughs) Yeah. And and then I got to college and I studied in... um, over overseas, uh, Stanford has a study abroad program in Oxford. And uh, what's interesting is the wine club at Oxford couldn't have been more snooty. Uh, and, and at the time, it was ruled by the snootiest Brit there was, which was an American. He, <laughs> he wanted to be a Brit, but the head of the Oxford Wine Circle was scary, snooty, and knew a lot about wine. And a friend and I uh, showed up to the first practice. They actually have practices because at the end of the term, they have like a Super Bowl blind tasting against Cambridge, Oxford versus Cambridge. And as kind of the ugly Americans, we asked if we could just audit the uh, the Oxford um, uh, wine circle. And they allowed us on, and they even allowed us to go through the 45 minutes of blind tasting. And this is a story I don't tell very often. I, I don't know why. Probably because it goes way back to um, my junior year in college. But uh, so they go around the room, and you know we weren't on the hook. We told them we knew nothing about wine. And I had sat next to the former president of the former president of the Oxford Wine Circle, and just to learn a little bit about wine, I started writing down. Um, the answer key to all of the eight wines. And, you know, if you do a blind tasting, um, it isn't just the grape. It's the region, the sub-region, the type of soil. Right, yeah. <laughs> it gets it's very geeky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I happen to have the answer key because I just wrote it down for educational purposes. Well, at the end, this Brit or this wannabe Brit thought he'd have a little fun. And he went, oh, uh, Mr. American, uh, what kind of wine do you think this is? And I couldn't believe he was calling on me. That wasn't the deal we brokered. And um, so I looked at my answer key and I go, well, um, I don't know. Could it be Sancerre, uh, Left Bank Loire, um, perhaps 1988? And I kept doing that. <laughs> and uh, the, they let me on uh, as a formal member because they were like, oh, my God, we've got a ringer. He's a ringer. He's so good. He knows his wine. And, of course, I massively disappointed them every time after that because they realized I didn't know much about wine. But that was the springboard. And I started reading about wine. And then I got back to Stanford. And instead of having a uh, competitive wine club, I created one that would bring the top winemakers from Napa, even Robert Mondavi himself, um, and top winemakers from Sonoma and up from Santa Barbara, like Obonkli um, Matza, Jim Clendenin, um, Doning Dwyer, one of the first great female winemakers in the, um, in the Napa Valley. And uh, they would all come in because they wanted to teach to the next generation of students. And I ran, I presided over like 45 of these, and I learned so much about wine that way. So that, starting this campus club was a very pure and exciting way. Uh, you know, hearing 45 different winemakers' stories um, really gives you a great education. Yeah, so... Well, that's 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 fascinating. You, so, did you ever work in restaurants, or or no? 
as a psalm, or did you ever want to? Or well, I'll, I'll tell you, I wanted once I presided over 25 of these Stanford Wine Circle tastings, I wanted to teach it because I started teaching little introductory programs to the Stanford students. I'm like, okay, before the winemaker gets here, this is what terroir is, or this is what uh, an oak barrel is used for. And um, before my fifth year, I, I got a master's. And so before that year, that summer, I remember, I, I'm a huge, still, I'm a Zagat Restaurant Guide fan. In fact, I participated when I was 16 in the 1985 Zagat Restaurant Guide. I was always drawn mm-hmm. to food and, and wine. And um, I looked in the back, and they had a list that said award-winning wine lists. And I cold called. This is the summer before my fifth year. And I, I'm in the middle of doing the wine circle back at Stanford, but I'm living in New York this summer. I cold called eight award-winning wine restaurants. And I asked them, can I teach a beginning wine tasting seminar in your empty banquet room? And each one of them said, you know, good idea, kid. But we make more money selling directly to diners. And then... One of the last places I hit up, I, I, you're probably too young to remember it, but the Soho Kitchen and Bar, which was the first big wine bar in New York. They had a Cruvenet machine, which held 100 bottles uh, by the glass, fresh, relatively fresh. And uh, yeah, I'm way too young. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm trying to think because I know I think we're pretty close in age. Maybe I'm a little younger, but no, I don't. Hmm. I don't know. Well, it was in Soho on Green Street. Okay. That, like everything else, became condos eventually. But at this time, it was an amazing wine bar, and the owner, for some reason, agreed to meet with me. And I'll never forget the owner was a very successful real estate impresario and and entertainment and food and hospitality. Impresario, uh, Soho Kitchen and Bar was doing very, very well. And they had an empty cabaret room. And he just sat there at his desk. And there was a cubist work of art over his desk. So I'm looking at him. And then I'm looking at the the representation, the kind of abstract representation of him over the desk. And he's like, you know what? I like this idea. It's very pure. Like your motives seem pure. So he's like, I'll tell you what. We'll provide the room, we'll provide uh, the setup and cleanup, and you choose the wine, something not too expensive, seven wines off our list. You market it, you teach it, you decide what's going to be taught, and we'll split the profits. And from the first administration, it was packed. There were 30 people, in part because my marketing was a little... Uh, let's just say irregular. I, I went around Soho and I taped up flyers. That's all it took. Uh, and by the way, it took three years for the New York City Sanitation Department to catch up with me. <laughs> but, but it's the Soho Anti-Snob Wine Seminar. That that was the name. That's I, what it was called? Yeah, I still have flyers from wow. it. And I did it for several administrations. Um, and it was just very popular. And I tell you, you really learn your chops teaching when you are a 21 or 22-year-old and you're in front of an audience of jaded New Yorkers who paid to be there. And, I mean, New Yorkers, you know this, they demand the best. So yeah. you better know your stuff. You better be entertaining. You better give them really good wine and repeat, rinse and repeat. And um, so it really it was an education in how to teach wine and do it succinctly and in a fun, entertaining way, but always with the best information. So was that how you you started to create a career? Um, I mean, I I saw in a a longer bio, there was a note that you were an attorney or so did you, how did you, I'm thinking like, how did you, how do you make a career like uh, teaching wine and, and traveling around the country? And well, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but doing all these seminars. But like that seems like that was the foot in the door and at least transitioning into to like making a living at it. It was. It was. That was the first um, that that got my fangs uh, into the flesh. You know, <laughs> that that it, yeah. it, the taste of blood was on my lips. But um, this was I now had um, 
I was graduating with the master's in English. And yes, I'd gotten into law school, but my buddy, Samer Hamada, who I knew from freshman year in college, um, we wanted to start writing books. It was as simple as that. And so I was teaching wine at night, but we decided to write books on internships. And back then, internships weren't that exciting. Did you ever do internships? I, I had a fabulous internship at the the one that stands out is um, at Food Arts Magazine. Ooh. Uh, I was there almost a year, unpaid, just doing doing <laughs> doing my work, and I loved it. No, but I think internships are very important and are great foot in the doors uh, into into finding out what you want to do and and possibly landing a a job. You know, to- totally, so. totally. And we really were evangelists for that. And now it's de rigueur. Now you have to get internships. Although I think they have to pay now. I, I know I pay my interns. I don't but, think they have to, but or I don't know. Or they should. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, but in media, all, and anything goes. Well, so uh, we wrote the first selective guide to internships because I was obsessed with college guides. I was obsessed with the Zagat restaurant guide. Right. I, I knew it. I still read it. Even though it's you know no one reads paper anymore, it's online. Yeah, I, yeah, it's online. But I get the paper version, and to me, it's like food pornography. Like I'll, I'll be eating a bowl of cereal, and I'll just look through these little succinct, interesting descriptions, quotes strung together of restaurants, and it gets me going. Well, I mean, we're gonna have to get to the book. Here. We're gonna yeah, take yeah. a break before the book, but no, I, having having looked through the book and knowing that it, the the style of your writing and chapters is kind of Zagat like, Comple- right? Completely. Okay, that's how I like my information, and really, that's the common thread through my career, because we wrote these books on internships. Same thing. It's catchy. It's the voice of the people strung together. It's all the information you need to know and cutting out a lot of the fat. So I, I was so inspired by Zagab. We wrote books on internships, and then we started Vault.com, which took that kind of snappy insider perspective and didn't just do internships, but did um, all Fortune 1000 companies, top law firms. And this was during the first dot-com, later to become dot-bomb, uh, revolution. So really, I had left wine. I started teaching about it. It was very successful. But, you know, we had this other thing going on in terms of creating kind of insider information on careers. I deferred law school for three years. Um, Actually, we started Vault after law school. I turned down offers from firms, took the bar, passed the bar. People were like, what are you doing? Like, wait, don't don't you want to be a lawyer? Like you passed, the, you went through three years and the bar exam only to turn it down. Here's the problem: I saw my friends, older friends, further mm-hmm. along, and most of them were intensely dissatisfied with the law. Some had the personality for it, but others were dotting eyes and crossing T's for investment bankers at two in the morning. And I, I thought to myself. I loved being back at Stanford for law school. I loved certain classes at law school. But man, I don't want to be caught in this vortex of unhappiness. So that's when Samer and I started Vault about insider career information. And then in the middle of my tenure, 11-year tenure at Vault, running Vault, um, I started teaching about wine again. And it got that taste in my mouth. And then my first wine book came about in 2005. So when we ended up selling Vault to a private equity company, um, I was able to transition full time into wine, bringing that same insider perspective. You called it when you saw that in the book and you attached it to Zagat. Because really, it's about making complex subjects simple and approachable and fun and entertaining and giving people what they need to learn. And so part of it, part of good wine teaching or teaching about anything is cutting out that which people don't really want to know or don't need to know. Yeah, and that takes time. That oh. takes a lot of extra effort. It makes it makes a lot of sense, and um, I'm glad I was. Uh, I, I'm glad I caught caught what you're doing. You so. really did. Cool. 
Okay, on that note, we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to come back and talk more with Mark about this new book he has out. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Raposo. And I'm Ben Rosenblatt. And we are Love Bites on Heritage Radio Network. Our show is all about why and how we love. Tune in every Monday at 4 as we talk about endings, new beginnings in relationships, about couples who work together and love together. And what life teaches us about love. So support our show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on that beating heart to become a member today and we will love you forever for it. See ya. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Mark Oldman. He is a wine expert who has a new book out called How to Drink Like a Billionaire. And um, it's fascinating, your book. I mean, it's it's got so many tidbits in it. I can't, I can't even, I can't even, like, it's, it's. Nuggets. I don't know how you wrote it. <laughs> it was painful, but I got through it. <laughs> but like, I mean, so how did you come up with this idea to write a book about how to drink like a billionaire and, and how, and talk a little more about how it's, it's structured and, and all the tips in there. Well, the original title, which is almost like startlingly accurate based on the quote you gave at the beginning of the episode was breaking the rules of wine. Ah, because neat. W- one thing I, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I seriously like hair is standing up on the back of my neck. I'm like, I can't believe, uh, you gave the Danny Meyer quote because I was talking to Danny Meyer not so long ago. And I also read his book and I love that litmus test. It's empowering. Whoever wrote the rule that mm-hmm. you can't do X and with wine, I mean, I mean, actually, that could be the name of this book, because one of the things I learned is that the people at the top of wine and the top of food um, love breaking the rules. And so they are my metaphorical billionaires. Sometimes people take it very seriously, like, or literally, I don't want to drink like Donald Trump. I don't want to drink like a billionaire. No, 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 no. It's how to drink like a billionaire. And by billionaire, I mean people totally in the know, people with it. And that some of those people are those great winemakers and those great chefs. And they're the ones who bend the rules all the time. And um, that's... The fun thing. I'll tell you, the people on Food and Wine's front lines tend to be the most prescriptive, tend to obey the rules and propagate the need. They tend to perpetuate at restaurants. Like, you you don't know. It's, I love being in restaurants with groups of people because not that many people know that I've written books on wine, and I'm mistreated all the time. My pronunciation is corrected. Um, I'm told I need to, a new glass for for wine. Um, they they overfill my glass. Um, not everybody, and there there's I mean there are places with incredible wine service, but it's the real youngsters or the places that don't train their staff. They tend to have these greenhorns tend to have the biggest rules about wine. But yeah. for me, the billionaire is the metaphorical billionaire is the one who can drink with unapologetic joy and break the rules. For example, putting ice in wine. Yeah. If you're having Latosh, 
you might not want to put that cube in there because it's going to dilute it. But I think nothing of a simple Sauvignon Blanc or even a nice Portuguese red. I'll throw a cube in. If it really freaks you out, take it in a spoon, uh, you know, uh, uh, swirl it around for 30 seconds and take the ice out. I keep the ice in because I don't have dilution anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> the, the doctor said. I, yeah. I did, yeah. It took years of therapy to realize that. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but so, so, yeah. so it's about relaxing and having fun with wine. But when you read the book, I'm glad you noticed the level of detail because I want the person who really knows wine, the stickler, to say, well, all right, this is a fun book, and it helps me relax, and it's empowering, but boy, does he know his wine, and boy, is there good yeah. information in here. No, you get, I definitely got get that from the book. I mean, there's just gems of information. Every page, I mean, it's, it's a little overwhelming how much content is in this book, right. and definitely my tip... I was thinking of Danny, but I was thinking of you when I, I saw what the, you know, you, you go through the list of, of the, the, the chapters of the tidbits and everything is, there's a lot of breaking the rules of, of what people or snobs or whatever apparently think what uh, people, you know, know it all say is how you drink wine or how you're supposed to, there was one in here, what, um, I wrote down a few, like ignore the cork, like, you know, I don't Absolutely. know, are you supposed to? I sniff the cork or no, not ignore the cork or um, you had love thy screw cap. I was wondering about that one. That's a new one. Um, I love it. When yeah. I see it in restaurants, sometimes waiters will apologize or hide the fact that it's snapping open. Um, to me, I love it. I embrace it. It's an excellent, excellent closure for most, if not all wines, except maybe the most ageable wines. And yeah, so it is about uh, relaxing. And what happens is, I think some wine professionals, they forget that most civilians don't know these things. Mm-hmm. See, I have yeah. great empathy for my mom and my sister and most of my friends who are otherwise quite cool or sophisticated or with it, but they don't know what they're supposed to do with the cork when it comes to them. So that's kind of a baseline thing that, you know, empowering people. Just if you get into one of these old school restaurants where they actually present you with the cork, just take it and put it aside. Yeah. No, it's, (laughs) it's, it's so many, so many tips. And you had, what about the, um, Good value versus good price when you're, when I mean. Ooh, that's a good one. And I am snared in this trap by unscrupulous wine professionals at least two or three times a year. And so, so now. What's, what's, what's your rule on that? Okay. So, so the thing is you're in a restaurant and you work up the nerve to ask your waiter, your sommelier that you'd like a good value. But, you know, the old saw in the sommelier world is, well, you know, there's a wine's a good value if it's $400, but drinks like an $800 wine. Mm-hmm. And so, but that's not what pe- most people mean when they ask for good values. They mean a low-priced wine relative to that wine list. So I think you have to be even clearer and be, as the Australians say, you have to be bullshy about it, ballsy, if you will, <laughs> and just say, shame shamelessly say, I want wine at the low end of the price list. I want one of your, so, you know, not, and, and you say, you know, but what's drinking really well and give a color and give, uh, a, um, you know, say you've already looked at the list. So, you know, the low end might be $45 or it might be 60 or 80, but state it. Um, there's no reason to feel any embarrassment or shame out of wanting to economize when it comes to a wine list. And I, I, especially back to Danny Meyer, I love his restaurants because I always feel comfortable putting myself first in their hands. And, and it's like a Mad Libs game. I give the color. So let's say uh, red. Uh, I give the weight. I'll say, let's say, uh, rich. I'm in the mood for a rich red, let's say. And then I'll say the price range, or even better, I'll say at the low end of the list. I want one of your least expensive wines. And then it goes into their supercomputer, that is Mm -hmm. their brain, 
And um, maybe I'll add a detail. Maybe I know my friends I'm with don't want earthy wine. They don't want a lot of barnyard in their wine. So I'll say smooth fruit forward, and they'll know what I mean. Or or I'll even say not very earthy, because I'll know the table doesn't want that. And then they'll go through, uh, they'll proffer a recommendation. And if they're good, and at his restaurants, they always are, they pick out, especially at Italian restaurants like Maialino, they pick out that little gem that I'd never see. See, wine people, we like to feel in control. But I like to show people at the table that even the wine person relies on a smart server or, or a smart sommelier because they're in license, they're in control of the ooze and the ahs. Yeah. They know what's producing that. And then, but here's the thing I say in the book, you have to have tender tendencies. Don't accept the first offer because I found that it takes a good wine professional a little time to come up with that gem according to your criteria. So like Tinder, scroll through it. <laughs> I was thinking you did say Tinder, not Tinder. Okay. <laughs> Tinder not, tendencies. I, I know what Tinder is. I'm single, but <laughs> I don't know if everyone else out there hey, does. Now, but now they know at least I'm single. Can I, can um, I tell you, Sherry, we need to do a special show. Let's call it 189, where I get to interview you about your single life over wine here. But anyway, okay. that's well, yeah, okay. I, we'll talk about that okay. after the show. Okay, let me. Good. We need to. We need to take another break. But I have a question for my last guest for you. On episode one forty two, Tommy Crudup was my guest. He's the senior talent executive and senior supervising producer for Rachel Ray. So he wants to know. So on the cover, you're slicing off the top of a bottle of champagne um, with a mini sword. He said, which is the sabering, and he wanted to know how many takes did it take you to master that. He was assuming you broke a lot of bottles. And I was skimming through the book and I saw you do have a chapter, Decapitate Your your Champagne. And you had a little story in there, too, uh, about what happened in Toronto and sort of. Boy, are you good? Um, yeah, I well, I found that I, I found that little tidbit, but yeah, yeah, how you had a little accident in Toronto doing it. But getting back to his questions, right. how many takes did it take you <laughs> to do the cover and and just, I mean, twenty nine, really, twenty nine? That is such a fantastically good question because I never talk about it because I just never get to that story. I went with this photographer. He knew the location. It looks Moroccan in the background, but it's actually an underground area of Central Park. Oh. Isn't that crazy? I feel like it's by the fountain, maybe. Is that where it is? It is. Okay. It does look a little like you're in Morocco. Not like I've been to Morocco, but... Yeah, me either. But But I have been to Central Park, and I think I know, yeah, by Bethesda Fountain, perhaps. But anyways, so 29 takes... 29 takes. I, it wasn't champagne. I couldn't afford champagne. But, um, you know, in the book, I talk about a million great functional substitutes for more expensive wine. And I love cremant. Uh, by the way, I love going, but the cremant, yeah. which is non-champagne French bubbly. So the bubbly that's in champagne, sorry, the bubbly outside of the champagne region from France and, um, for example, uh, and most every major wine region in France, like Loire, Burgundy, they all have a Cremant. Well, so I had a great Cremant um, from the Loire, and I kept beheading the bottles. And what happened is, I mean, there were tourists all around. It was like May of last year. <laughs> and um, so I would offer a decapitated bottle to tourists. Oh, they must have loved that. Half the tourists were like, we just hit the jackpot. Yeah, made their day. Yeah, and the other half were like, who is this guy and what did he put in the champagne? New York City experience. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, excellent. Well, that's a great answer. And And can I say, uh, Sherry, one of the dangers of sabering, I mean, it is like a greatest hits of don't try this at home, contents under pressure, glass, alcohol, um, what I learned in Toronto is very important for people to know. And I have found the greatest danger, so long as you follow safety steps of sabering, the greatest danger comes after you saber because the bottle's usually wet from the mm-hmm. ice bucket. And in Toronto, in front of a big audience, uh, I sabered. Here, Mr. Big Shot, I thought I was. And the bottle 
jagged edge slipped through my wet hand, mm. lacerated my thumb. I was bleeding like that Dan Aykroyd sketch about about Julia Child. It was squirting yeah, yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't oh, we don't have to go into so many details. We, we need to take a break actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But on no, no. Note, so you but you learned that, and and in the book you have you have a, an illustration too. I saw about it. So exactly. No, it's awesome. Okay, cool. And everyone be safe. But it's fun safe. too. Safe and wear fun. goggles. I like wearing goggles. <laughs> Okay, so now we are going to take a little break and then come back and we're going to play my speed round game and talk industry news. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Mark Oldman. It's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to give you a name a few things and you just pick your preference. Love it. Are you ready? Ready. Ready. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? You know it. It's got to be <laughs> wine, but I love beer too. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte, please. Small plates or large plates? Small plates, I like variety. I'm an eclecticist. Okie dokie. Mm. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter, uh, communal tables often don't have backs, and I have a bad back. Very good reasoning there. (laughs) Tipping or all-inclusive charge? You know, I've heard a lot of your guests say tipping, and I'm going to say tipping. I just love rewarding over-rewarding, dramatically rewarding, extra great service. I just It makes me feel good. Yeah. And, and then I'll even write an explanation on the check as to like what they did well. I actually did that in the last week. It's like fantastic service because I want their manager to see. And I like really over-tip. But. Well, I'm thinking Danny Meyer would like that part, but not he would <laughs> the tipping part. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. How about teaching seminars or writing books? Teaching seminars, uh, writing books is a very lonely process. I, I I can do it, and I'll push mm-hmm. myself to do it. But it's people are like, you know, you're on vacation, you're writing about wine. No, 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 no. You're a block from vacation, locked in an office. You can hear the ocean. You can walk outside, see the ocean, smell the ocean. But you've got to go back inside and just put your nose to the grindstone. Yeah, it's hard. How about red, white, or rosé? Oh, my God. That one's really hard. Uh, uh, Red, but it's by a hair. Okay. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. I I grew up hating cheese, and now now when you have to count your calories or at least not eat like a maniac, now I'm obsessed with it. So, (laughs) great. (laughs) Last one, Manhattan or Brooklyn? Uh, I love Brooklyn, but I was born in Manhattan. I got to go with the NYC Manhattan. Fantastic. You're fast. Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have definite opinions, although yeah. I'm very open-minded. Yeah. But yeah. No, that was fun. That well, was fun. Cool. So, industry news. Uh, I picked out an article in New York Magazine's Grub Street. Life in the trenches, what it's really like to cook for New York's most influential restaurant critics. And this was written by Armin Stevens, and he's a line cook at Union Square Cafe. I really didn't realize I was making this a whole like Danny Meyer show. <laughs> um, but it's cool to do it, so. Yeah, no, it's all tying He's in a together. Big hero of mine, yeah. So um so this is, was a great read because it was talking about what it's like to that you know, if people don't know, Union Square Cafe moved from its original location to a new location. So they had this opportunity or this this 
chance that they'll be re-reviewed or reviewed. So um, what it was like to be waiting or anticipating that Pete Wells is going to come in and give a review and how uh, he was talking about how they have a special misimplace every night for the chef, for, for anticipating if the reviewer or a reviewer will come in that they will hold for them. And then one night he did come in and he, this, this guy was in charge of uh, the Frito Misto, which is one of their, their specialty dishes or signature dish. And what it was like to be then go and like be preparing this dish for the New York Times reviewer. And um, it turned out well because they got three stars. So <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be prepared. Yeah, but it was interesting to see. Like, I didn't know really restaurants or, you know, had their own, you know, they're saying basically you're having the best ingredients waiting for a potential re- reviewer. And if the, uh. the person doesn't come in, that night, then a lucky guest is going to get the best carrots they have, or whatever right. it is. But like, that's what this article is saying. So I, I wonder if, if you can bribe them, like you know, hey, has the critic shown up yet? If not, can I get that really good lamb chop? Well, now, <laughs> now, now, I know you can ask for that at restaurants, but no, that's um, like incredible. You know, I'm so fascinated by that, and it's something I know little about. But I was speaking with Drew Nearport, uh-huh. um, the famous restaurateur, and. You know, he has gone to great lengths to reverse engineer uh, phone calls and try to figure out when a critic is actually, and it's like a cat and mouse game. I think it's so cool, but try to anticipate when that critic is coming in. And I think in that documentary on Corton, you do see him sifting through the phone records and somehow reverse engineering what uh, who the New York Times critic was, and then it showed the critic coming in that night. Um, so it's, uh, you know, in, in a game where um, sometimes this uh, critical commentary can be unfair uh, or, or capricious, um, you got to, I guess, do everything you can to game the system in your way, so long as it's re- really reflective of your dishes. I, yeah. It scares me. There was that great, I think it was Ruth Reichel, she... Uh, Early on, I think it was in the 80s or in the 90s, she reviewed Le Cirque once in disguise. Right. And, and once, once. As, as, as she, a, a middle-aged mm-hmm. woman then. And it was like, you know, a two-tier two two, system. Totally different experiences. Treated yeah. so well as the critic. And that burned me. And I lo- what a brilliant idea to mm-hmm. juxtapose the two reviews. The one where she was known, I think they got three stars. And one well, where she... Well, one star, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And that, good, sock it to them. So I don't believe in that. That's really not Yeah, cool. no, and I don't think they're, they are, I mean, they're not trying to do anything or give right. a different menu. It's just like being prepared that, you know, if you have yeah. a better piece of fish, <laughs> that you're going to save it for the, the guests you're trying to impress. Um, but I just, I was that when I was had dinner there, um, Steve Cuso came in at the exact same time who I know he actually came on my show. Mm. So I'm now thinking like, what was, I mean, he's the reviewer for the New York post. I'm like, he's, I don't think he's trying to be anonymous anymore, but I'm like wondering, did he get the better fish that night? <laughs> I, had a, I had a really great meal. But uh, Well, it's yeah. funny because uh, two nights ago, I was at a friends and family dinner for the Manhattan version of Emmy Squared. Oh, right. And I was with one of your former guests, the great Kate Crater. Ah, yeah, a, Kate. a Bloomberg. She's wonderful. She's and she's such a like benign force. Like she mm-hmm. told me, she's not out. Like she doesn't like a restaurant. She just won't review it. Yeah, but I mean, this is Emmy Squared, luscious cup pepperoni pizza and the juiciest double patty burgers. But so I'd like to think they gave us the best pepperoni. But all the pepperoni's good there. Uh, yeah, no, but. It's a good point. Yeah. And it is, it's delicious. It so. is. Okay, we're going to take one more break, come back, and we we'll do my solo dining experience. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Motel Morris. Here's the rundown. The location, 132 7th Avenue at 18th Street in Chelsea, New York City. The concept, comfortable neighborhood place for updated American classics. The chef, Bill McDaniel, and the owners, Brett Nidell, Sam Nidell, Tamara McCarthy, and Matt Mogill. Why did I go? Because their publicist, who's a friend of mine, had invited me, and the place sounded very charming, so I was intrigued. My experience. I arrived for my reservation for one, and the place was really happening for an early weekday night. It was loud. It was packed. It seemed to be the place to be. Luckily, they saved me a seat at the bar, which I took, and I had great service from the bartender team. What did I get? Now, I wasn't super hungry, but I decided to get something. I wanted something signature. So I went with the BLTA salad with lobster as an add-on. And it came with this giant crispy onion ring, which was the whole reason I got this salad, because apparently they're known for their onion rings. Um, So my take, great salad. Uh, Lobster was fresh. The onion ring in it held up the whole thing. It was uh, quite a presentation and really delicious. The ambiance. It's casual and cool. It has the bar in the center of the room, so it seemed kind of like a large dinner party. Perfect for a gathering with friends. Interesting tidbit. Motel Morris is not a hotel, but it is the second project from the owners who also own the the Commons Chelsea, which is a casual all-day cafe in the same residential building. And their family has owned this building for 30 years, and I found out that it houses seven members of the family spanning three generations, so they call it the kibbutz. Personal fun fact, I actually went to a second dinner that night of a potential client, and even though I wasn't hungry, I had to, you know, had to get through it because it's my job, right? <laughs> tough, tough life. The cost. Well, I was comped, which I say thank you very much. I appreciate it so much um, when, when I'm invited places. Uh, the, the, um, the cost probably, I think, was be about $24, and that's not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, uh, with a group I think would be fun next time. The website is motelmorris.com. There you have it. Can I tell you, Cher, I went there for the first time a week ago. I took, oh, really? took my mom there because she loves roast chicken. And I saw that was uh, lauded in, in the press. And that was the place I wrote on the uh, tip or, or on, on, on the check, incredible service. And I over tipped. They were the nicest there. And the chicken was fabulous. I'm having this like this like so randomly cool that you just said that. It, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like on 19th and 7th. Yeah, I yeah. love it. And yeah, it was, it was great. comfortable. The service was even nicer than it needed to be. Yeah, they were lovely. Amazing. They were lovely. It was very happening is, yes. is you know, I was Bustling. like, wow. So, good for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have to go back and try more things. So, okay, time for the final question. So my next guest is Marcy Blum of Marcy Blum Associates, and she's one of the premier event planners and entertainment experts in the world. She does lots of weddings, lots of grand events. So, Mark, what would you like to ask Marcy? Okay, well, let's think. I, In terms of uh, events, and especially weddings, people always call me up and they ask me, to look at the wine list of the venue um, to help them figure out what are the uh, affordable alternatives to the expensive wine. So I would ask her, how does she steer uh, guests? Um, Because even, I mean, I literally, a multi-billionaire type call me up and say, Mark, how do we economize? Because the wedding's going to be huge and I mm-hmm. just don't want to pay a lot. So ask her, how. what are her kind of principles or, you know, in terms of people economizing when it comes to wine at a wedding? Awesome. I will ask. Good question. Yes. And that's the show. Yay. So much fun. Yeah. Thank you. It went so fast. I wish we had more time. I know. Um, but remember the episode about your dating life. I, I'm going to turn <laughs> the tables on you. Oh, God. It's going to be good. Now, that's where the juice really happens. That's It was colorful today, but it would be technicolor uh, right here. You can't see me now, but I am blushing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so thank you, Mark. Your, My pleasure. Your whole career is fascinating so impressive congratulations on the book everyone should go out and get this i mean you won't you will not be disappointed how to drink like a billionaire 
everyone should know how to drink like a billionaire. Absolutely. Drink richly, like I say, but without spending like it. Yeah. Another good tip. No doubt. (laughs) So thank you. My guest today has been Mark Oldman. He's a wine expert. As we just said, his new book is How to Drink Like a Billionaire. You can find out more about him on his website, markoldman.com, and follow him on social media at Mark Oldman. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes and Stitcher. So the next two weeks, there are not going to be any live shows. Uh, I will be back on Wednesday, June 28th, 4 p.m. with Marcy Blum. And then the following week, on July 5th, I'm going to have Dr. Tim Ryan, the president of the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park. And I'm going to be at... The CIA over this two-week break at the Menus of Change conference and doing my interview with with Tim then. So we're going to broadcast it on July 5th. So stay tuned for all of that. And if you missed any of that, I'll post it on social media. So um, that's it. Thanks to Mark again. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to my engineer, Vitor. I'm Sherry Bayer. Thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.